I want to call your attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2, we read this chapter a few moments ago, and it is a, a, such a great chapter. And this chapter came alive in my soul many years ago when I listened to a recording of a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones on it, and I hear his voice in a way every time I read this chapter. It shows the wisdom of God contrasted with the foolishness of man. But man in his sinful state thinks of God's wisdom as foolishness and thinks of his own foolishness as wisdom. In sin we get everything backwards, don't we? But this chapter lays out how that God has revealed his wisdom to those whom he saves. And it is in this context that we come to verse 9, and this is the verse I want to focus on here by God's grace in this message. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. The apostle, by inspiration, writing to the Corinthians, speaks of the whole scheme of redemption, the whole scheme of saving grace as the most amazing, and marvelous and glorious thing. He speaks of it in the superlative terms everywhere. And so should we. The revelation that God has given of himself in Christ and in salvation is the grandest and most amazing and infinitely glorious thing that anyone can contemplate or know about or know in their own hearts and their own experience. It was the wisdom of God, that's the term he uses uh, earlier in this chapter, to send his son to earth to redeem unworthy sinners like you and me. This is the testimony of God, as he calls it in verse 1. And it is a hidden wisdom, he calls it there in verse 7. So hidden that no one would ever have dreamed of such a thing. No human mind would have imagined such a glorious thing as God reaching down to save sinners at his own expense. Or at the expense of sending his son to come into this world and to live 
and to die and to rise again. Matthew Poole commenting here says, It could never have entered into the heart of men to conceive that God should give his only begotten son out of his own bosom to take upon him our nature and to die upon the cross or that Christ should so far humble himself and become obedient unto death. End quote. Yes, it would never have entered into our heart. And that's what he's saying here in the words of our text. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Christ and him crucified is foolishness to man, but it's the wisdom of God. And this wisdom is not observable by natural man. It is not discoverable by mere human reason and intuition. No one ever stumbled across it by accident. The only ones who see it and understand it and believe it are those to whom God has revealed it. He's opened our eyes to see it. He's removed the scales, removed the blinders, as it were, so that we might see. God must reveal it or we will never see it. Verse 10 says, God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. In verse 9, we have a quotation from the Old Testament Scriptures. But as it is written, and this, of course, is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4, which reads, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, nor hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. But God has revealed these deep things, things freely given to us by God, as he calls them in verse 12. He has revealed to us the mind of Christ, as he calls it, at the end of verse 16. And he's done this out of pure goodness and grace. Sometimes we hear 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 quoted in a way as to teach that the glory of heaven will far exceed our wildest imagination. But that's not really what Paul is telling us here. That's not his point. Certainly, the joy and the glory of being with Christ forever is beyond our comprehension in many ways. But that's not the point that is being made here in this context. And we have to be faithful to the context. I was interested to see that as far back as John Gill's day, people were 
using this verse uh, in that way. But the fact is, the very next verse, verse 10 says that these things that God has prepared for them that love him, he has revealed. And so he's talking here about information that has been given to those who are saved. So what are these things that God has prepared for them that love him? Well, it's the wonders of grace. It's the glory of Christ. It's Christ and his salvation, the benefits of the gospel. That's what's in view here. Now, the thing that I want to focus on is especially the last part of the verse. Those whom God saves are described with these words, them that love him. No man is able to comprehend the things of the grace of God that he has prepared for them that love him. Saved people are described and defined here in this phrase, them that love him, them that love God. In a way, this is perhaps the most simple definition of what a Christian is. One who loves God. And we might think of other phrases of description that could be given, such as those who trust in God. That would be true and accurate. That would certainly suffice. Or those redeemed by God. Or those who are in Christ. Or, in, as Isaiah says by inspiration, those that wait for God. But we must understand that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, says it this way here. Giving us, in a way, the, the substance of what Isaiah was saying when Isaiah used the phrase, them that wait for him. Well, certainly those who wait upon God are those who love God. It's the same group of people simply described in, in different ways, in different terms. But it has pleased God to say it this way here. A Christian is one who loves God. What is it to love God? You know, sometimes we talk about these things and, and we don't really pause to define them. To love God in the, the most simple and a practical definition is this. It is to delight in and desire for God and all that pertains to him. 
At least that's a good working definition. To love God is to delight in and desire after him and all that pertains to him. And in saying it that way here, this is just one of many texts that emphasize this truth. That a Christian is one who loves God. Think, for example, of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says, All things work together for good to them that love God. Well, who are they? Well, they're the ones who are called according to his purpose. Those who have been chosen, those who have been called by his grace and brought and drawn to Christ and so on. In James chapter 1, we read that the crown of life is promised to those who love God. And again, think of all the different phrases that might have been used there. The crown of life is promised to those who believe on the Lord and who are faithful to the Lord and so on. But the words of Holy Scripture are those who love the Lord. In James chapter 2 verse 5, God has promised a kingdom to those who love him. Paul, again writing to the Thessalonians, prayed that God would direct their hearts into the love of God. This is a great priority. Love for God is a great distinguishing characteristic of those who are saved. Similarly, Jude exhorts us to keep loving God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. By way of contrast, we read of those who are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And there is the great divide among humanity. There are those who love God and there are those who love pleasures. Worldly pleasures. Sinful pleasures. As Jonathan Edwards said, true Christianity consists in the affections. What do we love? What do we treasure? What do we delight in? And this is so true and and so consistent that one of the practical definitions for a Christian is he's one who loves God. She is one who loves God. This is the first and great commandment, to love God. Though we have not seen him, we love him, Peter says. It's the great characteristic. And... Though certainly faith occupies a unique place among the graces that God gives to his people, love likewise occupies a unique place. And I'm not sure that I have yet found a way to understand which one comes first and 
which, which one is the, the cause and the effect, and so on. They, they rise and fall together. We certainly wouldn't trust him if we didn't love him, and we, how could we love him if we didn't trust him? Well, after Peter denied the Lord three times, he had to affirm his love for the Lord three times. And our love to God is the reflection of his love to us. It is the reciprocation of his love to us. We love him because he first loved us, John tells us. God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts and given us this this capacity to love him and this desire for him. A little later in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells them how that love is absolutely essential in Christian experience. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. There is no substitute for love. There's no substitute for love to God. It is absolutely essential in Christian experience. Well, obviously, much hinges upon this. And I want us to examine our own hearts today and consider if we love God, Can you say, I know that I love God? It behooves us to be sure that we are among those who love God. So how can we know? Well, let me give a list of several items here that will give evidence of loving God. First of all, and we'll spend more time on this one than the others, if we love God, we love His character. We love who He is. We love what is true of Him. We love the definition that is given to him in Holy Scripture. His perfections, his attributes, his eternal self-existence, his infinite presence, his perfect power, his infinite knowledge. His purity, His holiness, His justice, His love, His wrath, everything that Scripture reveals to us about Him, we appreciate, we love, we treasure. 
Because God is not just an abstract title or word. He is a divine person with with these characteristics that are attributed to him in Holy Scripture. Many people today love a God of their own definition. They have failed to see the biblical definition of God, and they've come up with their own. They've written their own dictionary, written their own uh, Stephen Charnock, we might say. And this God that they believe in is one who is lenient towards sin. He's not too demanding. He certainly doesn't require the maintenance of justice in his rule. He freely overlooks sin without demanding its punishment. And people love this God. They fall in love with him because he is more like they are. He sins a little himself. That's what it comes down to. He's not so holy as to make them uncomfortable in his presence. This God is like Santa Claus. He's this benevolent old character who makes threats but has no intention of carrying them out. And at the end, everyone gets whatever they want from him. That, my friends, is a God of man's definition. And to love that God is simply to love an idol that exists nowhere except in the mind and imagination of man. And when people that I'm describing here are presented with the biblical truth of who God is and what he is like, a God who is holy and just and will, in fact, cast lost sinners into hell forever. And a God who shows mercy to whom he will show mercy. They say, I wouldn't have a God like that. I I couldn't worship a God like that. If God were like that, I'd, I'd hate him. You've heard people say that kind of thing. I know you have because I have too. And when they say those kinds of things, they reveal that the God that they do love and the God that they do serve is simply an idol. He goes by the same name, but he's not the same person. Furthermore, many today love God. Only insofar as he is useful to them. 
in accomplishing their personal desires and purposes and pleasures. They love God only in as much as he promotes their selfish, earthly interests. They are not really interested in serving him. They're interested in his serving them. And that, my friends, is nothing but self-love. Disguised, cleverly disguised as love for God. It's only love for him as long as it's in my favor. I think it's so interesting when we read testimonies like uh, David Brainerd gives of the Indians in the Northeast back in the, in the mid-1700s. He said that they would say things to him like, if God sends me to hell, he'll only be doing what's right. He'll only be doing, he'll only be giving me what I deserve. You see, that, that's an indication of a soul that, in, in how else can you say it, has come to love the attributes and the character of God, even if it's against him personally. Brainerd says in that context he knew that they were not far from the kingdom. So if we love God, we love his character as set forth in Holy Scripture. Secondly, if we love God, we love his works. We love all that he does because he is the one who does it. We love his work of creation. We love to look at it and, and, and behold the beauty of the creator in his creation, even in its fallen, cursed condition. We love his works of providence. We love how he has sustained this world. And even in all of the ups and downs of human history and the difficulties and the dark providences and so on, we see his hand. We love all of his works and especially his work of redemption. This is the crowning work. This is the most glorious. This, is, this evokes the most appreciation and affection from our hearts. Everything he does is perfect. As for God, his way is perfect, the psalmist says. And we find all that he does to be well done, satisfying, a reflection of himself. We have no complaints about what God has done or is doing or shall do. We have only praise for it. Thirdly, if we love God, we love his word. Holy Scripture is a delight to us because it's his word. It's, it's the, the authorship of it that makes it so 
marvelous in our eyes. It's different from anything else that anyone else has ever said or written. Here we see the mind of God. We see the will of God. We see something of the glory of God. It reveals God to us. And we receive the love of the truth. As it's called in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Fourthly, if we love God, we love his law. And of course, this overlaps with his word. But his, his commandments particularly in Holy Scripture. In Psalm 119, we read these familiar words, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. I can't get my mind off of it. It, It's with me when I wake up. It's with me when I fall asleep. In the words of the New Testament, God's law is holy and just and good. In such contrast to our fallen natures, which are unholy and unjust and evil. God's law is something to delight in after the inward man. When a person loves God, he loves God's law because he's the lawgiver. And instead of saying he's too strict, he's too demanding, we find delight in obedience to his commands. We, we find, as John says, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy. They're not grievous. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that in turn overlaps here with point number five. If we love God, we love his rule. We love his government. We love his authority over us. We love his sovereignty over all things. And we're happy to submit to him as our Lord. We love being governed by him. We love holiness because he is holy. We love his yoke that comes upon our neck as we submit ourselves to him. And we find his yoke easy and light and restful compared to the yoke of sin And the yoke of every other master. Love to God makes obedience a delight. Love to God makes duty a delight. Number six, if we love God, we love his day. And again, I realize there's some overlap here in these points. But this ought to be emphasized Robert Murray McShane preached a sermon many years ago in Scotland called I love the Lord's day and that is the the reflection of those who love God because he has set aside a day for us to worship him and gather together and worship him together And we love this day. We look forward to it. We 
plan for it. We anticipate it. We plan around it. We prioritize it. It's a taste of heaven to us. We wish it could be every day. Wouldn't it be great if we could just come and gather seven days a week and sing the praises of God and think on Him and draw near to Him and encourage one another in Him? Well, that's a little like what heaven itself will be. If we love Him, we love His day. Number seven, if we love Him, we love His glory and honor. We love worshiping Him. We love to pray to Him. We love to walk with Him and draw close to Him. We enjoy His company. We enjoy communing with Him. Number eight, if we love God, we love His children. And I'm thinking here especially of his children by redemption. I understand that in, there is some lesser sense in which all are God's children by creation. And, and we should have love at that level. In that way, we love even our enemies. But there is a special love for those who are in the family of God, the redeemed family of God. The Apostle John emphasizes this Several times in his first epistle, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. How can we love God and not love who he loves? Not love our fellow brothers and sisters. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. It's impossible. And while it's true that with all of our remaining sin and weakness, there are some in God's family who try our patience and make it hard to like them. Nevertheless, we must love them as family, as the people of God. We must desire what is in their best interest and seek opportunity to promote what is in their best interest. Pray for one another and look for opportunities to help one another. Number nine, if we love God, we love his disciplines. Now, this is... This is a difficult subject. This, in a way, is the most difficult item in the list here. But I remind you of the words of Paul, again, to these Corinthians, only in the second letter. He talks about the thorn in the flesh given to him by God to keep him or make him humble before God. And understanding that and having from God the promise of sufficient grace... Paul could say, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, rejoice in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, listen to this, I take pleasure in infirmities. I know the book of Hebrews says, at the moment of chastening, 
It's painful, but afterwards it's delightful because of the fruit and the result. And I have to think that's what Paul is saying here in so many words also. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We come to love the chastening hand of God because we know it's for our good. We know we need it. We dread to think what we would be without it. You look at a child on this earth who's undisciplined. Why, he's the awfulest spoiled brat. The same is true or would be true if God did not discipline you and me, child of God. And so we love his disciplines, realizing that it's for our good. And looking at all of this in another way, number 10, if we love God, we hate what he hates. Our heart is so in tune with him that we love what he loves and hate, we hate what he hates. And he hates sin in every form, evil in every aspect and manifestation of it we can say it this way love for that which is good necessitates a hate of that which is not good and both rise and fall together sin becomes our grief a grief to our soul our own sins especially and the sins of others as well and the sins of the world as a whole around us and the sins of our nation grieve us. And while we rejoice in Christ, we grieve over all that is against him, all that is sinful. Our heart reflects the heart of God, we might say. And if we love him, then we must hate what he hates. These then are ten simple ideas that help us to examine our own hearts if we love the Lord. So back to our text here for a moment. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. God has revealed to those who love him and to those whom he has given his saving grace and thus given this capacity to love him. He has revealed unto us the deep things of God, the mystery of the gospel, we might say, his salvation, his son, his redemption, his preservation of our souls, and yes, his heaven that he will open and share with us at last. So this is 
perhaps the simplest definition of a Christian. And I want to ask you now to take an honest assessment of your own heart. And the question is very simple. Do you love God? Can you honestly be described as one who loves God? According to the biblical definition and definitions that we have seen here today, can you honestly, in your heart of hearts, say, I love God, and I know that He loves me, because I wouldn't love Him if He didn't love me. I mentioned Peter a few moments ago and how that he denied the Lord three times, and so a little later he must affirm his love to Christ three times. Each of those three times, he prefaces his expression of love with these words, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. He calls upon Jesus himself to be a witness to Peter's heart. Beloved, can we call upon God as a witness today to the love that we have in our heart toward him? Is God himself your witness? If so, then thank him for his grace and ask him to help you to love him more. And I don't have any great formula about how to love God more. The only way that I know to love God more and to grow in love to him is to increase in understanding his love to you. His love evokes our love. And the more we understand and appreciate his love, the more we are able to love him in return. And so let us study the love of God, the saving love, the Calvary love. And we will find our hearts more and more drawn to him. And if you must honestly say today, I don't love God. I cannot call upon God as my witness to the love that I have for him. And my friend, I just would urge you to come to him and ask him for a new heart. Ask him to do heart surgery. Ask him to give you a heart transplant. To take out your old, sinful, wicked, dead heart. And give you a heart that loves him supremely. And that delights in him and all that is his. And longs to know him and serve him. 
and to be with him. Ask him to change you. Ask him for this heart, and he will give it to those who ask sincerely. He's promised. He's promised. Heavenly Father, search us and know us and reveal to us our own selves and our own hearts that we might have honest dealings with you. Remove from us all pretense and hypocrisy and help us with a pure heart to delight in you and to desire you. Help us to know what it is to love you and then to rejoice in all that is ours in Christ, the things that you have prepared for us in this life and in the life to come. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. We pray that you would work in every heart here today. You know each individual heart, each individual need. We look to you and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.